we start today's episode, just to let you know, you can now nominate for the 2025 Northern Power Women Awards. To be in with a chance of celebrating with changemakers, trailblazers and advocates on the 6th of March 2025. Nominate now at wearepower.net. Power Women podcast for your career and your life, no matter what business you're in. A very, very happy new year and welcome to the first episode of the Northern Power Women podcast for 2019. And it's episode 19. You can't change the world, but you can change your bit of the world. I'm Sam Walker. I'm still running at about 39% mince pie. But I hope you had a terrific Christmas and you're ready to tackle the next 12 months head on. This month, you can hear a great discussion we had at HSBC in Manchester, where we talked about 2019 goals, HS2, will it or won't it actually arrive, and personal financial responsibility and education. When you empower and enable women, when you kind of educate women on how to run household bills, etc., manage the purse strings of the household, more of that money goes into education, health, nutrition. So there's a trickle-on effect into the community and the family. I shared a really fascinating conversation with former Chief Prosecutor Nazir Afzal all about how to make a difference to the world. Uh, my daughter takes the proverbial out of me all the time. You know, she always says, women and girls, women and girls, when I'm walking past. And, uh, I, you know, and <laughs> <laughs> because in many respects that's what I've got known for. But the point is that I felt that that was where I could make the greatest mm. impact. And in Ask the Hive, what do you do when your boss constantly asks you for personal favours? Kind of suck it up until you're at her level. Then tell her to stick it. Now, as our bodies start to return to the awful reality of no chocolate for breakfast, let's catch up with a woman who had a huge 2018, but plans an even bigger 2019. It's the founder of Northern Power Women, Simone Roche, with some news from HQ. Well, Happy New Year and welcome to episode 19 of the first podcast of 2019. We're so excited for the year ahead with more celebrations of all things Northern Power Women, starting with the announcement of our shortlist for the fourth Northern Power Women Awards, sponsored by Manchester Airports Group. Listen out for our interview series with some of the key players from Manchester Airport, as well as interviews with some of our mentoring cohort in partnership with Michael Page. We'll also be announcing later this month new additions to the Northern Power Women Power List and Future List. Fantastic role models from across the whole of the North. Thanks so much to the hard work of our judges who came together in December for 10 category panels, totalling almost 60 judges who've had to deliberate, debate and arm wrestle from the 900 nominations to whittle them down to our shortlist. And thanks to some of our stellar judges, Libby Annett, James Harrison and Siobhan Gohl for taking part in this month's panel discussion, plus Nazir Afsal, who's our Person with Purpose interview this month. We're delighted to be bringing back our power circles courtesy of KPMG this month. Debates, discussions on all things that's happening across the north of England. And in February, we'll be bringing Northern Power Futures to Newcastle, supported by EY and Vodafone and the Armed Forces. So grab your tickets and hear what the future of the north are talking about. As ever, if there's anyone that you would like to hear from on our podcast, please contact us on social media at North Power Women or drop us an email, podcast at northernpowerwomen.com. Please stay in touch and have a great new year. Do remember you can follow everything we do here at Northern Power Women online at northernpowerwomen.com or on Twitter at North Power Women. Now, to this month's discussion panel and a big thank you to HSBC in Spinningfields in Manchester for being our hosts. What 
a delicious welcome. Uh, thank you so very much indeed. Uh, welcome to episode 19, the first episode of 2019. Look at that. It's almost like we planned it of the Northern Power Women podcast. Thank you so much to HSBC who are hosting us here today in Spinning Fields in Manchester. As ever, we have three fantastic panellists, three awesome questions and some time to change the world or at least get a little bit of the way there. So, yeah, no pressure. Uh, so please say a big hello to uh, our panellists this month, to Libby Anat, Controller of Ethical Trade and Sustainability at Primark, to James Harrison, Director, PPM Solutions. Uh, James started as an apprentice engineer and has been Head of Service for Large Telecommunications Company. Is that what PPM Solutions are, telecommunications? Uh, the project and programme management, so uh, from, from the skills that I picked up in, uh, in industry, really. He's got it all going on. We know what Primark is. That's why I didn't come to you, Libby. We know that. Uh, Siobhan Gale as well. Welcome to you. Thank you very much indeed. Siobhan is Relationship Director, Real Estate Finance, HSBC, UK Bank, PLC. That's quite a lot to get on a business card, isn't it? Yeah. 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 (laughs) Very, very large business card. That's the, the poster you're carrying around with you. Well, hello. Welcome. Thank you all very much indeed for being here. Okay, our first question for today. Now, last month, we learned the HS2 rail project, heralded, of course, to provide a huge boost for business and connectivity in the north, may be in trouble. So what do you think? What's your view? Is HS2 what business in the north needs? Or do you think the money actually could probably be better spent elsewhere? Libby, let me start with you. So, um, interesting question. I am you know, have to put my hand up, a commuter. So I use trains a lot to go down to London where part of my job is based. Um, but I do struggle with this. So, so the, from a benefits to myself, absolutely, it's going to shave an hour off between Manchester and London. That's great. But the thing I struggle with is that we are still reinforcing this idea that London is a centre of everything and that the objective of funding is to make it easier to be in London, to get to London, to bring business up from London. And actually, I think what's needed and what a lot of people I've spoken to have, have, have endorsed is more support for across the north rather than just kind of reinforcing this thing that London is the hub of everything. So, yeah, it could be better well spent. Mm. Do you, do you, I mean, we always talk, we've talked quite a lot on this podcast, in fact, about the fact that to get from one side of London to the other, which is kind of the same distance between, say, Manchester and Leeds, is a tenth of the price and so much easier. Is that where the money should go? Yeah, so that route from, I guess, if you started from Liverpool across to Hull, that's where I think the investment needs to happen. Yeah. Okay. James, what about you? I mean, do, is HS2 going to be what the North needs, or do you agree with Libby that, in a way, it's serving London more? Yeah, I totally agree with Libby's point. I think the um, having had to commute quite regularly to London, it, it's not a problem really from the north. It, it's it's relatively simple. The trains are clean and quick. Quite expensive, if I'm being honest. Yeah. Really, really expensive. Um, I've also had to travel across to to York for from my role from from Lancaster, and that took longer than it does to get to London. And I think and it was on a a really really old rickety train that was cold. I couldn't work on it, and I just think that's where the money could be better spent on yeah. rolling stock and. And uh, an improved network in the north. And do you think it would change business within the north? Do you think it would give a huge boost? I mean, not just make our lives easier, of course, although we all want our lives to be easier, but would it also kind of put that economic boost in there? I think it would. I think um, people are, are obviously um, held off from living in certain parts of the country because they can't get to London or big cities or, you know, you're talking about Manchester, Leeds. If you live... 20 miles outside uh, Leeds it's probably uncommutable on the train if, if you actually in, invest the money mm. in that you could you open up a, a whole load more talent into into the regions and it's that reliability isn't it yeah. being able to trust that you can get to where you need to get when you need to get there yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely the amount of times I've had to drive places when I'd much rather have caught the train just because I needed that guarantee that I'd get there on time it's Siobhan, what's, what's your view on this? Let's mix it up. Go mad. Say you want it today. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm not going to mix it up, I guess, because I totally support the comments that have been said. I suppose at a high level, any investment that's going to uh, reduce time, improve connectivity is positive. But um, supporting what we've, what we've just heard already, that... Um, not all roads should lead to London, I suppose, mm. and connecting Liverpool 
to uh, Manchester better and onwards to Leeds, as James has just said. Um, I think that's that's the key for what the Northern powerhouse is all about, because um, it shouldn't be about just you know shaving an hour off of our trips down to London. Perhaps we shouldn't have to go to London so much. It's interesting, isn't it, that all three of you have picked up on this this message, I suppose, of HS2 is only going to serve London. So at the very least, the PR's gone a bit wonky here, hasn't it, if we all, if we all don't see HS2 as a big benefit to the North, which, if you kind of delve in, is, is what it's meant to be about. I think that's right. And, you know, when you, when you look at the map of HS2, it is sort of like that Y that goes down to London, and it's not the bridge between the cities that are up here or, or further north, up to Newcastle mm. and beyond. Um, and I think, you know... As a user, I, I, I commute around Manchester, I drive in, I, or I can get the tram, but you know that investment in the tram has been uh, amazing for this city, um, but it's already at or near capacity yeah. at peak time. So you know, further investment in the likes of that, I think, would go a long way, certainly for Manchester. And, of course, you can't drive into Manchester City Centre, of course, unless you start your journey before you're born. Uh, it's that impossible to get around anywhere at the moment. Uh, let's do a show of hands. Who thinks HS2 is actually going to happen? Okay, so just under a third of the room think it will happen. So two thirds of the room don't actually think this project is quietly sidelined. Maybe we know Crosswell's over a year late, don't we? So watch this space. You heard it here first. Fantastic stuff. Uh, Let us know your thoughts, of course. Always lovely to hear from you. All you need to do is tweet at North Power Women or you can email podcast at northernpowerwomen.com. Okay, let's talk money. Let's talk money, shall we? It's New Year. None of us have got any. Where can we get some? Uh, Well, look, as one high street bank announces measures to help customers block spending on certain items in advance... Does more need to be done to help us as individuals manage our finances? Is there still a lack of financial education within this country? We should explain that one bank, basically, you you can say uh, say to your bank, don't let me after nine o'clock at night spend any money on this gambling website or don't let me at nine o'clock at night spend any more money on, say, uh, takeaway food apps, for example. So you can actually state areas where you don't, you know, the bank won't allow you. Uh, to to spend that money. Um, Siobhan, obviously banking is is your sector. What, what do you think of this measure? Um, I think it's I, I think it's a positive, but I think we do need to. It's it is an individual's responsibility to be responsible for themselves. Um, that said, I think banks and wider across the society, people that have the ability to pass on good financial knowledge, improved financial literacy, it's incumbent upon us to do that. And I think Mm. banks like HSBC and and a number of others are investing in trying to help with that. Um, Some of those tools, like you've just said, are out there. But I guess arguably where we are at the moment, we've never had more sort of visibility on our money with the number of apps that we have and and you know banks are working together so that you can actually see all of your bank accounts and credit cards in one place so mm. you that there's lots of tools available i guess it's making sure that people know that they are there and how to use them would you would you recommend any personally that you use because i've seen ads for these and i always feel a bit nervous still putting all my financial information into an app that's then on a phone and i think oh could this get hacked but is there any that you think that's a good one we actually have one, HSBC have one, it's called Connected Money and um, one of the big benefits is that you can see your bank accounts with us but also with Barclays and RBS and a number of other institutions so you, you, you can see them all in one place and that's not you sort of uh, um, inputting your financial information into a third party website, the banks are speaking to one another on your behalf and I think that's probably the safest way. Okay, James, what's what's your view on this? I mean, did you I'm gonna throw a question at you. Don't you're amongst friends. You can you can be honest. When you left school, did you know what APR meant? Did you know what an endowment meant when it came to an endowment mortgage? Were, were you given that financial education at school? So I think we were taught about it from a mathematical perspective, not from an actual what does this actually mean in real life. I remember being sat down having a uh, father-son chat about birds and the beads and uh, financial <laughs> responsibility. I got talked out of buying a car to buy a house and was basically taught through why why that would why that big sound financial sense. But it was it, that was purely from from having that conversation with my dad. I think mm. 
I think it just it, it, does, it does rely on individuals taking responsibility for themselves, and I think that's where the danger of the app comes. You've got to have that responsibility to lock yourself out. It's not something that um, either the gambling websites, fast food chains are going to block you on the, on their behalf. So I think it's, yeah, it's a tough one. I suppose take, making that call to the bank and saying, can you block this, is, is taking the first step, isn't it, actually? And is starting to take that responsibility, knowing that you have weaknesses around certain things at certain times. Is stage one, maybe? Yeah, definitely. I think uh, I might use that one for the uh, fast food outlets, um, <laughs> particularly uh, as it's Christmas time. But um, but I think yeah, I think it does. It is that first step. But it, it's more. It's probably the people who aren't going out asking for that who need the real help. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, it's a tough one. It's a great start, but I think um, I think there's more that could be done. Um, probably within education rather than uh, mm. than after the event, if you like. Libby, I'm going to put you on the spot as well, like I put James on the spot, and, and you know when you. When you left school, were you aware about, you know, how to handle your finances? Did you know how, say, to set up a household budget? Um, A little bit, yes, I did. But I had very good um, support at a family level. I think what one of the things that that struck me about this conversation is that the particular initiative to me sounds a little bit gimmicky. But I think what it does do is shine a light on the fact that people need financial education, and I think you mentioned this as well. Um, When we've worked in developing countries around financial education, um, one of the things that we've learned is that if you are poor, it's very expensive to be poor. If you're poor, you're less likely to have access to formal banking and less likely to have access to people that can educate you and support you around finances. And the other thing that we've learned as well is that when you empower and enable women to, um, when you kind of educate women on how to run financial house, um, household bills, etc., manage the purse strings of the household, more of that money goes into education, health, nutrition. um, So there's a trickle-on effect into the community and the family. So there is something there, I think, that maybe we need to look at. And we've got to remember as well, I'm sat here talking about developing countries. We had a visitor from the UN looking at the UK in terms of poverty levels in the UK. You know, we, you know, I think it's one in five children is, is now living in poverty. So maybe there's something there that banks could do around financial education for the most needy in our country. I don't know. I think maybe some more research that needs to be done. It's very interesting what you said about being poor costs a lot of money. Mm. I think from even when... I remember getting my first flat and realising that the electricity meter that I had to post money into cost me more than if I was able yeah. to do a direct debit, but I hadn't had a bank account long enough. And and similarly, you can see ads on TV from certain companies where you can get a TV and pay £2 a week, and you end up paying thousands of pounds for that TV, more than it would cost if you had the money yeah. to go and do, buy yeah. it outright. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. So you think it's financial institutions as well as education who maybe should... to not just dip a toe into the water but dive in here yeah i think there's i think there's something there that needs to be that needs to be teased out are there people that are unbanked um why are they unbanked and what additional support could those people need because actually there is a huge knock-on effect in terms of the well-being and financial health of communities that comes with that thank you so much really interesting food for thought there um as ever what do you think what are your experiences um in this sector northern power women would love to hear from you you can send us a tweet at north power women or a podcast at northernpowerwomen.com can you believe we're on to our final question already Woo! Well, I, was, I was expecting more of a oh Aww. oh well done <laughs> i'll edit that out it'll all be fine uh, let's look then let's take a look back here we are you know this podcast of course will be being available to our fantastic listeners in january 2019 who can believe it and I suppose if we look back over the last year everything that has happened big campaigns like me too times up shall I mention Brexit we've not talked a lot about it in the last uh, few weeks um I want to ask you what are your hopes for 2019 with regard to maybe to your career to women's career to your sector uh, to the north to the UK the world the sky is the limit your hopes please they can be deep and meaningful and intellectual or they can be dafted is completely up to you uh, James let me start with you 
Cool, thanks. Uh, I think what I'd like to see is um, a bit more sort of global leadership. It's probably one of those big asks, but I think there's a lot of parochial issues going on. So you've got US, China having trade wars. We've got Brexit. I've mentioned it, so I've put a pound <laughs> in the pot. Sorry about that. But it all seems to be the kind of, you know, everybody shouting and screaming for, for what's best for them. And we just had a, a UN um UN conference where actually there's there's bigger things that, that the whole of humanity need to get together to to actually address um, global warming. We, we talk about countries going under financially. You know, within the next 12 years, we're going to start to see countries disappear, going mm-hmm. underwater. So um, I think that's why I'd like to see some some global leadership and some some sort of joined up thinking. Whether or not that's a bit pie in the sky, but um, that's what I'd love to see next year, if possible. Do you want to tweet Donald Trump now and let him know that, seeing as he's the one who seems to have pulled out of all those agreements? Yeah, I'm sure the Don will be listening, so uh, <laughs> we'll, uh, I'll, I'll give him a tweet and he should fix it all. Simone, would you, would you, you know, induct Donald Trump to be an honorary Northern Power woman? I, I can't hear you. Oh, she's she's too far back in the room. Look at that, Libby. Your hopes, dreams, aspirations. Oh, I think. This year has been such a tremendous year in terms of the things that you've mentioned, like the Me Too and Times Up movement. And I, I and I really want to see more of that. I want to see more collaboration, though. I think there are all these amazing things going on across the country, across the globe, and bringing them together through collaborations um, so that you're, you're amplifying the message, you're amplifying the leverage. There's some great initiatives already going on in this country I know about that are bringing together local particularly based in the north organization that work that work on um, supporting women and girls so if you can bring all those together and amplify that we could start to do that globally that's where i want to really see some some kind of movement we are literally putting the world to rights here on this episode this is brilliant siobhan in some ways i suppose it it's um, nearly the opposite of what you've just said um in that uh whilst celebrating uh, women, gender diversity um, is excellent and absolute supporter of that. But um, it's probably beyond a next year goal. But that in time, we're not talking about it anymore because it, it is there. I've got a little boy who's 18 months old and I really hope that by the time he's 18 years old, he it's not a conversation point because he is, whether he's in education or working or whatever he's doing, that he's surrounded by people who are diverse and aren't the same as him and that, you know, his female colleagues are in every sense equal to him. So I suppose um, we'll, we'll need to go through the phase of continuing to raise the bar and, and making sure that we are getting to that balance. But I suppose that we don't go too far on that on that of um, kind of uh, over diversifying for diversity's sake and making sure that, for example, in some of these global leadership roles that we've got the right people in those roles, not just women for ticking a box sake which is the kind of comments that I hear when I hear of some women who have you know the absolute credentials to do excellent jobs and those sort of derogatory comments being made now because in some senses we've sort of banged on about it a bit too much I suppose and and it's now creating that negative feedback which is exactly where we don't want to be so it's, it's, I suppose isn't that feedback a necessary evil that we have to push through and push past and um, you know on this episode of this podcast you're going to hear an interview with uh, Nazir Rafsal of course he's the ex-head um, uh, of the uh, CPS in the northwest and he says all the fear around comments like that is just a fear of a small group of men. It's their fear of losing power. Mm-hmm. And they will say anything and do anything yeah. and try and stir as much as they can because they fear losing that yeah. power. And it's that fear we have to tackle. Definitely. And I guess that's the, the, the point of what I'm trying to say is that I guess we've got that hump to come over and then that we really do have level playing field and, and it's not an issue to talk about anymore because mm-hmm. it just is. This is wonderful stuff. I think we should form our own country. Um, and it would be a great country. What would it be called? I wonder, Simone. We've, got, we've had Wakanda. Oh, we've had, I think it's a whole... We're a continent, aren't we? You know? yeah. You're right, actually. actually. If we were an economy... Yeah. Then, uh, yeah, the, we would be the sixth largest economy in Europe if the North was an economy. Look at that, yeah. you see. Statistic, fact or fiction, who knows? Now I'm going to lunge at you. <laughs> I'm going to lunge at you because um, it is the first episode of 2019. And you as our great leader, uh, Simone Roche, MBE, I have to say that, she makes me say it. I, I'm joking. <laughs> um, our great leader, Simone, thank goodness I know you so well. Um, 
I want you to answer that question as well, please. Um, I want more about what we are actually doing and what we are actually demonstrating action. I want it to be less about what we can get to in 60 years or what we can say, I hope, you know, as Siobhan said, I don't. I want my, my young 18-month-year-old to be able to grow up not having this. I want that to get closer. And the only way we're going to get closer to that is by doing. So we can keep talking about all of the barriers. I think it's about what we do and it's about what's the art of the possible and taking that into our whole, you know, our own hands about what we can actually do. So let less talking, except on a podcast, mm-hmm. um, and more doing. I think we've created this whole community. Um, you know, we, we've done this amazing judging for the awards and every year it's like that celebration of brilliant brilliant exceptional people of all backgrounds all genders doing great stuff so how are we getting rid of the dinosaur behavior and bringing into effect the stuff that is actually change making because that's how we get close to that it's what's the art of the possible as opposed to keep going on it's been a very interesting year about everything that is so (sighs) negative and so you know sort of quite draining so I'm very much around new year new approach new doing new getting stuff done and and even if you make mistakes it's okay it's about the doing and I think that's where we have the great opportunity in the north to do that to see I want to see the outputs of these great collaborations and mischief that has been enabled um, both in this community and outside of that community but I want people to shout loud and proud about it because everyone wants to do something and be a part of it and I want to enable more of the doing hooray Huzzah! Yes, indeed. Thank you all so much. What a brilliant, positive end to the very first episode of 2019. To Libby and to James and to Siobhan, thank you so much. Happy New Year! Thanks again to our brilliant panellists for providing such great food for thought. And also, again, thanks to our hosts, HSBC. We'd love to know any subjects that you'd like to hear discussed on our next panel. And indeed, if you'd like to host us, all the details you need, any questions you have, just send us an email, podcast at northernpowerwomen.com. Now, to a man who for many months lived his life in the full glare of media scrutiny when he brought the Rochdale grooming gang to justice, former Chief Prosecutor Nazir Afsal, a man who believes passionately in making the world a better and safer place for women and girls. I asked Nazir what his ambitions were when he was growing up. I'm the son of an immigrant. My family came here from the northwest frontier of Pakistan. They came to this country to give their children opportunities they wouldn't get back there. I was born in Birmingham. I grew up in the 60s and 70s when racism was extremely overt. Uh, at that time, I think my family, my parents certainly felt that we were just going to be visitors at some point. They're going to chuck us out. Uh, and uh, so they wanted us to study. Uh, they wanted us to uh, study things that might be useful back in Pakistan. So, you know, originally, you know, when I was doing my A-levels, you, know, you need to do the ones that will make you a doctor or a scientist. We, and I said, I want to be a lawyer. We don't need any lawyers. There's plenty of lawyers back in Pakistan. You know, we need engineers. And so that was their thinking. And that's perhaps the way I was brought up. But mm-hmm. but I think nearer, uh, when, I, when it got to A-level time, you know, the late 70s, early 80s, I realized that actually um, you can make a career in this country and you can make sure that uh, you seek whatever opportunities are out there. And so I did. I, I qualified as a lawyer. Uh, I decided then that I wanted to work in crime uh, as a lawyer, not as a criminal. And uh, <laughs> uh, initially I worked as a defence lawyer for a little while, but realised I didn't really enjoy that very much. Uh, and then the prosecution service came up, and it was brand new at that time. It was three, four years old as a national service. I took the opportunity to work in it. I chose to work in London, where, you know, sadly, even I say this now to a lot of young people, that the opportunities are always going to be greater when you're young in London. That shouldn't be the case, but that was the case back then. Uh, but it gave me the opportunity to work in uh, the highest profile work, uh, the highest weighted work, the most difficult surroundings, um, really challenging work, and not necessarily be judged on it. And mm. we didn't back then have KPIs the way we have KPIs now. What's a KPI? A key performance indicator. Everything is measured now. So, you know, uh, you were just allowed to get on with your work. And, uh, and I did, and I took advantage of everything that was thrown at me, and I... 
pushed myself out of comfort zones. I was never, I get bored very easily. So I decided I didn't want to be doing the same old, same old. And I was always reached for the too difficult tray, you know, the th stuff that nobody else wanted to touch. Uh, and and I made sure that I pushed and pushed. And so when they get, when they said, Nazir, we want people who can actually prosecute these cases in the Crown Court, would you be up for it? I said, yes. When they said, would you want to work in policy and help them devise some new legislation? I said, yes. When they said, uh, do you want to do some international crime? I said, yes. Again, prosecuting, not doing it myself. Uh, I, made a, I made a point of always doing things that perhaps, because it was interesting to me. I wasn't interested in what uh, perhaps others wanted to do. I didn't think about it being like a career issue, you know, in terms of career progression. I simply wanted to make my days more interesting. I want to go back again to something you said right at the beginning. So there you are, a son of Pakistani immigrants who don't really value law as a career. What sparked it in you? What made you, the young Nazir, go, this is what I want to do? Where did that inspiration come from? My father... Um, came here. He worked for the British Army as a sort of caterer for many, many decades um, before arriving in the UK. Um, but he, when he arrived, he decided to take a sort of leadership role for the local community in Birmingham. So he set up an association uh, which was of, of, of the local immigrants. He was providing support and care work and uh, you know, advice, etc. So he wasn't a lawyer. Um, and I think I took a bit from him the, uh, the idea that um, uh, you can help other people uh, if you are in a position where you can. And so that was part of it. I think also you have role models. Uh, I think all of us have role models. So mm. back then it was Martin Luther King, it was Nelson Mandela, it was, they're all lawyers, it was Mahatma Gandhi, um, who I did for Radio 4 Great Lives. So you know, these are the people who back then uh, were lawyers, but they did more than just law. And I think that was the opportunity that you could use law as a, as a stepping stone to other things, to make a change, uh, was something that really attracted me. Mm. I've talked to many women on this podcast who, who are now barristers, and when they were starting out in law 20, 30 plus years ago, one of the biggest challenges they faced, of course, was their gender. There weren't, I mean, speaking to Cherie Blair, there was no more for her, there was nowhere for her to get changed even. I mean, lack of diversity isn't just about gender, of course. As the son of Pakistani immigrants, what challenges did you face walking into the, the world of very white law? Uh, you're absolutely spot on with that. Uh, I remember being at university in Birmingham and I was pretty much the only person of colour in my year. Uh, and... But, you know, I, I didn't see myself as a pioneer. I just saw myself as not different to anybody else. People did see me as different, though, and uh, that was something that I, you just have to um, deal with, I think, I imagine. When you qualify as a lawyer, you're going into courts, and, again, you're pretty much... The judiciary was all white, um, the uh, white male. Uh, the mm -hmm. lawyers that you ran up against were pretty much white male. The people that managed you and managed your teams were white male. Uh, they, they encouraged you to go out drinking Friday night because that's when you'd hear about the new job opportunities... I don't drink, and so I was going to miss out on that. And I think part of me actually then hated myself because I was doing some of that. You know, I would go out Friday night because I thought that was what everybody else did, but then I realised I didn't enjoy that, and so I stopped doing that. Um, but you're, the, the landscape was what it was. Um, but you can't change the world, you can change your bit of the world. So how did you change your bit of the world? I, just, I decided very quickly that I would focus on the areas that we were not doing very well at. So one of the things that we did really badly as an organisation, and, and most organisations still do, is engaging with communities. So I set about doing that. And that meant, you know, we, we were meant to be independent, which is what the law says, but actually we were detached. As they're two different things. You can be talking to people, but not necessarily have uh, let them change your decision making. You can get information from them. So I went out, uh, you know, I literally, I think this is another trait for my, for my parents, 24-7, you know, I didn't take holidays. I would be out there every weekend at school halls, you name it. I remember going to above a bookmakers in North London to talk to young men all wearing bandanas to understand why they were involved in knife crime 15 odd years ago. Um, you know, it didn't matter where it was, I would be there. And I think that's part of it. it was, then I felt actually that I was making a difference because I was doing something nobody else was doing, seemingly. Uh, and I was making it comfortable for others, those who uh, I managed or those who were in my wake, in effect, to say, look, this is good. 
Uh, and at the end of the day, our decisions are getting better by the more the more diverse uh, our community community engagement is. And so I could demonstrate that, I could evidence that, and, uh, and also I found that much more fulfilling. You know, I wasn't just working in an office shuffling paper, which you know easy to do. I could still be doing it for the next 30, 40 years, but no, I wasn't going to do that. I wanted to engage with the people I was serving, and I think people often forget that with public service, the word service. <laughs> you know, uh, I used to start my speeches, "I am your servant," and people would go, "What? What? What? He's my servant?" and they couldn't really understand what I meant, but that, the fact is I'm, not, I'm doing this job because you're paying me to do this job, and I'm doing this job to keep you safe, hopefully. Therefore, we need to work together on this. Mm. You talked about the too difficult tray yeah. earlier on and always choosing the things from the too difficult tray. Lots of things you've just discussed there clearly fitted into that category. Where did that come from? Where did that, that fearlessness come from of, of challenging yourself? Um, because... That's the way you change. Uh, you know, I, I saw I, I, some phenomenal lawyers around me who were uh, doing their, doing great jobs with the cases, but and they'd move on to the next one. They really wouldn't care less about whether they've learned anything from the last one. Uh, and I couldn't live like that. I couldn't work like that. Um, you know, we, 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 you know, my personal view is that you've got you, know, you as an individual need to take responsibility for what you can do and then as a result of that hopefully others will do the same. And I think one of the things I'm really privileged at is the victims and survivors started talking to me. You know, going back 20 years now, they've been everywhere. They've been sharing their stories with me. And once you hear one story, you think, oh, my God, we need to change the way things are being done. And when you've heard a thousand, oh, my God, we need to change everything. Uh, you know, the law needs to change, the process, procedures, everything needs to change. Uh, and that comes from the fact that they've honoured me by sharing their stories with me. And I, and I suppose the reason why they've done that is that they trust me to do something with their stories. It's not enough to just hear them and tick a box we've listened you know it's actually to act upon it and going back you know 20 odd years where there was victims of forced marriage saying that nobody in government is listening listening i made sure that government listened to them when victims of of, of airline crime airport crime antisocial behavior you name it they again i would i felt i felt really i don't know duty bound to open a door for them that otherwise wouldn't. I couldn't do it myself, but I could open doors uh, with government, with ministers, with local authorities, with other agencies, uh, and, and I did. And then, uh, then I became much more f familiar with the issues around women and violence against women and girls. So this was around 2004, five, and I realized actually that much of what's wrong with our society is because of the way we treat women and girls. And once I'd begun to understand that and hearing this, again, stories of victim after victim, realize actually you know we can tackle organized crime if we tackle women and girls we can tackle even terrorism if we tackle women and girls we can tackle much of what adverse childhood experience if we dealt with domestic abuse and what's, what's happened to women and girls and so once i'd begun to understand that that's when i began to mm -hmm. focus in that area uh, my daughter takes the proverbial out of me all the time you know she always says women and girls women and girls when i'm walking past and uh I, you know <laughs> <laughs> because in many respects that's what i've got known for but the point is that I felt that that was where I could make the greatest mm. impact. You said that there's, you know, you work a lot with, with Wales now, of course, with the, the Welsh government. Yeah. I know there's been, a, I think it's a 20% increase in reported violence against women and girls in that country, which just seems extraordinary, seeing as we're now in 2018. You also said you don't believe there's anywhere in the world, you know, you engage with 50 plus countries around the world. He said, there is nowhere in the world where women are safe. Yeah. Why in 2018 is this still the case? Because... It, we, we, we choose, we, we're dealing with the symptoms, so we deal with the crime that's happened, the abuse that's suffered, the, the, the sex victim, whatever. We're dealing with the symptoms. We're not yet dealing with preventative work, and we're dealing with the culture that creates all of that. So when I talk about misogyny and, uh, and power and control, and, and those are the reasons why men do this, you know, there's no solution for which men aren't the problem, you know, and we have to address that. And I think that, you know, that's, we're still 50% of the population as men, and therefore, sadly, we can't let go. I often have this conversation with people and say, look, uh, share the power, share the power, and men go, oh, no, if we share the power, we'll lose power. I said, no, no, if you share the power, it grows. And, and, you know, would you do this if it's your daughter? And sadly, some of them kill their daughters, so that, that doesn't work. Uh, but, you know, I, 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 we have to change the culture that creates this kind of behavior. And you're absolutely right, there is none. I've dealt with victims from 64 different countries, perpetrators from 75 different countries, just in the UK. And it's everywhere. It's, uh, it's, it's the, almost the default crime to treat women and girls badly yeah. uh, and violently. And so... I know that's how we're going to change the world. And so I don't care. You know, I, I, you know people say, well, you know, I think the New York Times called me the uh, 
what was it, the masculine feminist, whatever that means. I have no idea what that means. Uh, Thomas and Reuters said I was the unlikely feminist. I don't even know what that means either. All I know is that what it means is that I recognise that if we treat women and girls better and children better, we will be much better as a society. And so I've taken that on board. And whenever I had an opportunity, whether it's a case, whether it's uh, an issue of law, whether it's um, an issue just more widely, that I would take the lead on that. I, you know, nobody else will. You know, others might do, but I've, I've, I'm very fortunate to have been in a position where people want to listen to me. And so if they do, I need to use whatever opportunity or platform I've been given for, for this good. I really like the concept of of violence against women being driven by fear of losing power. So it's tackling that fear, which actually is unlocking the key there. It is. You know, I I, I had a conversation in a northern town, which a northern city, which I won't mention. Uh, There were 250 people in the room, 240 women and 10 men on one table. And I I was making this point. And, you know, I was getting these looks from the 10 men as if I was saying something really uncomfortable. I don't care whether I was uncomfortable or not. But uh, but to to my great, yeah, I made a point of picking them out and pointing them out. And then I discovered they were the local councillors. Uh, and that it makes they it held even, all the power, and that makes it even worse, doesn't it? Uh, thankfully, you know, shame. You sometimes you have to name and shame. And uh, in, 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 you know, obviously, they were there; they couldn't leave. So I'd, I'd made a made a point of it. And the other two hundred forty people, the invariably women, uh, knew who their who their challenges, where the challenges were. They knew already, uh, but they need allies. Male allies is how we make this the difference. You know, women's and NGOs and working in, in charities and organisations, civil society are doing phenomenal work. In very led by women. I'm patron of 11 women's-led NGOs in the UK. And, you know, patron is simply, again, opening a door, supporting a funding application. But I'm always uh, impressed and enamoured, really, in the work that they do. And, and I hope that more men would step up. And yes, they are. Uh, and maybe it's a generational thing, actually, because more younger men are beginning to step up. Uh, the older men, takes longer. I suppose your most famous case, your most high-profile case, was that of the Rochdale grooming gangs. What was that time in your life like? Because you were working under such intense scrutiny. I moved up to here to the northwest of England. I um, asked my teams, have you got something like this in your back catalogue that we haven't dealt with? They brought what you, what you now know as the Rochdale case. I looked at it, I thought, hang on a minute, why, we didn't, why didn't we prosecute this? Why didn't we investigate this properly? And it was because uh, these girls, well, this is the, the decision at the time that they were chaotic and they were troubled and no jury would believe them. I believed them. And it was our job to make the case stronger, not for them to change the way their ways, you know? And so... Um, I had a phenomenal team around me. I still, you know, I pay such tribute to them. They were brilliant in the way they provided support to these victims, uh, that they were able to deal with the case itself. We had the far right outside of court every day trying to exploit it, um, which was in the BBC Three Girls film. You could see that happening. Uh, What you didn't see was what happened afterwards. Because when they were convicted... Um, the, the world wanted to know what was going on. So Prime Minister Cameron and others were ringing up, what's going on? Is it? And I explained what was going on and tried to understand it and writing articles to try and get people to understand the issues here, that this is not an ethnicity issue. This is about the availability and vulnerability of these young girls and how they've been list- left behind, not listened to, etc., etc. But then the far right decided that I damaged their narrative. You know, They wanted to be able to say that all minorities are the same. And so they said that... Um, when they discovered that I was the one that brought the prosecution, uh-oh. So, you know, you're going back five, six, seven years ago, the first time I've ever seen fake news, and they created Facebook sites and others saying that I was the one that didn't prosecute these guys, despite the fact that everybody knew the opposite. And their, their ignorant followers came for me. And, mm. you know, I'd spent 25 years prosecuting the most serious crime on earth, you can imagine, and I always never talked about it at home. I kept it from my home, and suddenly I had a fire right demonstration outside of my home. You know, I had to have a police officer stationed outside of my door for three weeks. I had panic alarm in my house. My kids could only go to school by taxi for several weeks because that was the safest way for them to move that. My wife suffered seriously as a result of all that. And my, uh, I got 17,000 emails to my teams in one week calling for me to be sacked and deported. Well, I was born in Birmingham. I don't want to go back there. Um, but... You know, the, you had to make light of it, but it was resilience of my network. My resilience, people say, are oh, you really resilient? No, it was my networks, it was my staff, it was my people around me that kept me sane at a time when I realised I'd done everything right in that case, yet they came for me. And so imagine what happens to you when you don't get things right, you know? So I, I also had to protect the people who made the earlier decision because they were made a decision that was flawed. It wasn't because they were, you know, 
racist or, or politically correct or not, they just made a poor decision. Mm-hmm. And so I had to protect them from the prying eyes of the media who wanted to know who they were, etc., etc. But this, at the same time, I had to protect myself and my family. And, you know, I couldn't have done that without the support of so many people. And yet, time after time after time, white grooming gangs. There was one just a few weeks yeah. ago, wasn't there? A white grooming gang was, was sentenced. Did anyone call you Nazir to comment on that no, one? Not in this, no, not until I tweeted about it. And then uh, I was getting loads of phone calls saying, well, Nazir, we're, we're interested now. Uh, you know, the point is that that's, um, it's 84% of sex offenders in this country, as you'd expect, because it's a British white country, are British white men. Uh, and sex offending takes many different forms. The, va- the vast majority of children, sadly, are abused within the family. The second largest are abused online. Today, you can watch a child being sexually abused for you in real time for pennies online. That is devastating. The third largest group of victims are institutional, so in places of worship, in sports clubs, in uh, the BBC, you know, all sorts of environments where we thought children were safe. Uh, And then you have street grooming of the type that you saw in Rochdale and some other parts of the country. So it's a problem, but it's not the, the problem. The problem is how we as adults have allowed children to be su- suffer as they have done and to, uh, to do so and the victims have suffered and the perpetrator has been able to act with impunity and so that's my challenge that's my challenge to everybody is that we need to take responsibility and deal with this issue i don't um you know the figures f- speak for themselves you know two women every week in the england and wales are, are murdered by their intimate partners T- Ten women every week kill themselves because of domestic abuse. One in four women are stalked. One in four women suffer domestic abuse. One in four women are sexually assaulted. We have a problem. And unless we start addressing it in that way, and that's through education as well, which, you know, we, you know one of the reasons I left prosecuting was because it's a sledgehammer. A police officer prosecuting is, is a failure. Everyone, because somebody's already suffered. My view is that we should stop it happening in the first place. And so I'm working across agencies across governments to try and educate our way out of this, working with young people. And we start too late again. We start at high school. There's research that tells you you can identify the propensity to violence of a child from the age of four or five. So why are we not doing age-appropriate education? Why are we not talking about gender equality at five or six? Why are we allowing people to build up these views about men and women, the power and control issues that we talked about earlier? We can do that through education. And and again, authorities are way lagging behind. We still do a lot of paper. paper you know, we, my son got a leaflet recently in the street for a campaign. And he goes, "What's this?" You know, they receive all their information on Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, Reddit, you name it. That's where they get the information. And therefore, if we want a message to them, we need to do that. And the other thing we need to do is peer to peer. Older young people don't listen to old people. My children don't even listen to me. What they do listen to is other young people, peer-to-peer stuff. Getting 17, 18-year-olds going into primary school and high school, talking about gender equality, mm-hmm. talking about these types of issues is the key. And the other side of that, by the way, is that we need to pay them to do this. I've fed up now telling young people it's good for their CV. We always say that we want when we want something for free. What we should be doing is we value it as a society. We should be paying young people to, to educate our future generations. And that's how we'll drill this out. It won't happen in one generation, but it will only happen if we start this work early. Such big thanks to Nazir for reminding us that sometimes just changing one bit of the world can make a huge difference. If you'd love to hear someone on this podcast, do let us know. Get nominating. Email podcast at northernpowerwomen.com. Now, a tricky subject in this month's Ask the Hive. It's the place, of course, where you ask a question and you get a whole host of advice. And it's a question now of when and how to say no to your boss. Hi, I've got a question. My boss keeps asking me to do things that aren't my job. I'm not her secretary and I'm not supposed to run errands for her, but she asked me to... Uh, fetch her coffee, nip to the shop and collect things that she needs, um, things that are nothing to do with work. It's not my job, um, but she's my boss and I feel in an awkward position and I don't know how to tell her this isn't acceptable to me and I don't want to do it without causing trouble at work because she's my boss. Thank you. Oh, that sounds really tricky and clearly you... It's one of those things that I can tell that you're finding it really patronising and really difficult. My instinct is that actually you're going to have to talk about it, but you don't have to be confrontational. You could just ask why and understand the intent of her asking you to do that. 
Because once you've established the intent, you might find that actually she's not doing it because she wants to have a power trip or anything like that. It might just be because she hasn't thought about it and just simply by asking why or what's the reason, then you may find that you get to, um, you get her to think about her, um, her actions before you've even kind of said, actually, I don't really like it. I'm really sorry that it's finding, you're finding it so frustrating. I think there's a, there's a lot of answers for this, and it really comes down to your team dynamics and, and your own relationship with your boss. I mean, I'd be really specific and really focus on how busy you are with the day job and how much this is getting in the way. So the, the next time the boss boss asks, you know, simply sort of email or, or just say that you're really busy with, you know, and state a few things. And, you know, hopefully that will get the boss into the routine of asking others. But, you know, I mean, if you do have a decent relationship with, with, with your boss and they're generally a reasonable person, I mean, two big ifs, you could address it directly with them as well. Hi, it's a bit of a difficult one without knowing what kind of organisation you work for. I think this is a slam dunk if you've got an HR department. Go and see them and just say what's happening and it's affecting you and maybe they could bring up that issue for you at one remove. She'll know it's you, but it's been done officially and properly. I guess it also depends how much you want to get on and how much of your time it really is, whether it really bugs you or whether it's just one of those everyday uh, hassles we have in our work life, in which case I'd say kind of suck it up until you're at her level, then tell her to stick it. So I can really hear the frustration in your voice, even as you're talking about the situation. And that's very much likely to play out in some way if you don't deal with this frustration. What does that mean? It means sitting down, thinking through how you might approach this with your boss, the boss in an emotionally intelligent way. And what do I mean by that? It's about being aware of the fact that you are frustrated with it, thinking about the approach you can take, knowing what you know about your boss's personality, what is the best way to approach this, and strategizing properly. So sitting down, writing down how, what you might say and how you would say that to get the best possible response from your boss. And then before you even go in and talk to your boss, visualize having that conversation with her and visualize it with a positive outcome. It's not unreasonable to speak to your boss. It's not unreasonable to outline what you think are the parameters of your role. And if you're doing things outside of that, particularly if it's on a personal level, and you're not comfortable with it, is to actually say that. I'm, uh, listen, I'm not comfortable with this, and it doesn't it doesn't fit with what I do. And especially as I have all of these other priorities, all of these other things to do at work. So visualise that, prepare yourself, and then go in with that positive attitude, a smile on your face. I'd just like to have. A conversation with you, an honest and open conversation about some of the things I've been asked to do. Is that okay? Thanks so much if you sent us your advice this month. Very, very much appreciated. Now, this month, should you pay to be interviewed? Hmm. Hello, I recently applied for a job abroad which involved a fair number of telephone interviews. I got the job, but I've just got my phone bill and it's over £150 as they always ask me to call them. Should I invoice for this money or should I accept that it's part of the interview process cost? Do you have a view on what this young woman should do? Please do get in touch. We would love to hear from you. You can record a memo on your phone and email it to podcast at northernpowerwomen.com or you can open up WhatsApp on your phone and add the Northern Power Women podcast on 07928 387 712. That's 079 2838-7712. You can send us a memo on WhatsApp, send us a voice memo, just hold down the microphone in the message window and then your thoughts will come directly to us. If you need any more help or details on how to get in touch, just head to the podcast page at northernpowerwomen.com. So again, Happy New Year. Thank you so much for listening and do let us know your 2019 goals. Get in touch on Twitter at North Power Women. 
set your alarm. The next episode arrives for you on Monday, February the 4th. And until then, this is the Northern Power Women podcast. I'm Sam Walker, and this has been a What Goes On media production for Northern Power Women. Northern Power Women.